Gordon and Barbara turn back to Luke chapter 1. Just one message from the Gospel of Luke. As I was looking at this passage this week, actually trying to memorize these four verses, and then, of course, uh, getting the news that uh, Milburn had passed away and, and uh, what I was going to preach here and over there later this afternoon. But I looked at these verses and said, that's what I should preach. That's what I'm going to do. I was also, uh, for this next week, when I speak up in uh, Ontario, I'm speaking on the subject, Issues in Contemporary Theology. Doesn't that sound exciting? I know it would. And um, that is a study of where a lot of people's faith has gone these days and what liberalism and modernism really looks like. And as I studied that and wrote a lot of uh, quotations and things together, uh, I thought to myself, how, how needful uh, are, uh, is this message that we have in Luke's four verses here on the Word of God and how reliable the Word of God is for us today? The source of truth for people, folks, is changing quickly. The source of truth used to be God. God was the source of our truth. And now, today, you are the source of your truth. And many people believe there probably isn't a God anyway. You want to hear something that sounds, sounds odd? This is from a modern-day liberationist theology. Those who believe in liberation. Sounds good, doesn't it? But Gustav uh, Gutierrez, who is pretty well known, said, Theology is not a systematized set of universal eternal truths but it is relative to time and situation, always dynamic and changing. Truth is not uncovered in ivory tower reflection, but in the trenches of social and economic conflict, seeking to right the horrific wrongs perpetuated on the powerless. Sounds like CNN news, doesn't it? That's where theologians are today. Liberation theology is that, that theology that believes really the whole object of Christianity is to liberate the oppressed, and that's all there is to it. There's nothing more to Christianity. Another uh, author of that uh, ilk said, For many Latin American liberationists, the death of Christ is not universally efficacious to those who accept it. It is only as one imitates the radical revolutionary Christ who fought for the oppressed and condemn the injustice that one may experience salvation. There's no salvation in that, folks. Isn't that amazing? Truth is constructed by you. There's not truth in God's word. It's whatever you think and whatever you are constructs your own truth. So people have been oppressed. Here's, here's an author, James Cone, also very well known, who's into racial theology. God's salvation is revealed in the liberation of slaves from socio-political bondage. The cross of Jesus is nothing but God's will to be with and like the poor. It is not possible to do Christian theology which does not represent the interests of victims in our society. I can see your eyes blinking already. I know you're really getting this. So let me, let me read one more from a feminist uh, uh, liberationist. She says, because the Bible was written by men, it should be distrusted. 
Because of the patriarchal foundations of Scripture, feminist theologians seek to uncover truth for the guidance of women through deconstruction of the texts. That is to deconstruct the Bible and take it apart and leave what only what uh, you want left from it. Isn't that amazing? And I have a book full of these kinds of things. It's amazing where people's thinking have gone today. But it's no wonder we hear what we hear in the news. It's no wonder we hear what we hear from theologians and from modern books and Christian bookstores and all the rest when that's where people's thinking uh, has gone today. So we come to Luke chapter 1 where Ron read, and, and a great uh, poem, by the way, it's later than you think, uh, applies very well to this. This is a classic piece of Greek literature. The way it is inspired and the way this, this educated man, Dr. Luke, begins his book, his first two books, this and the book of Acts, is an amazing uh, statement here. Now, as we read it, and, and we're going to read it again, of course, the major problem that, that you and I have in our day is this. Has God spoken to us? That is, has God, does God have a word for us that is true? Can we go somewhere and say this is true? And anything that contradicts this is not true. Do we have that or not? And, and most people in our society today throw up their hands and say, well, of course not. You don't have such a source of truth as that. And yet that's exactly what the Bible claims to be, the Word of God given to us in an infallible way so that we know what God has said. I predict, and it's not much of a prediction, but I predict that the critical issue that will cause the next generation of churches to go liberal is to leave the Word of God, to leave the Bible as the Word of God. And it's already happening, of course. It's been happening throughout our generation. So we're going to look at these verses that say an amazing thing about God's Word. Remember, this is called, by the way, folks, bibliology. You know, when you study the doctrines of the Word of God, there's theology, the doctrine of God, and soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. This is bibliology. You remember these four words? One is revelation. God has revealed himself, and he has done that since the Garden of Eden. When God walked with Adam in the garden, he revealed himself to Adam. Do you think what God told Adam was true or false? <laughs> well, of course it's true. But some people today don't even believe in Adam either. So, you know, in God or in Adam. But he revealed himself to prophets. He revealed himself through miracles and in infallible ways. And whenever God revealed himself to human beings, that was truth. Now, we have then inspiration. And that is a few times throughout history, God chose certain people to inspire them to write down what he revealed so that it's write, written down in a permanent record so that we can read that record and say, this is true. If God gave it and God inspired it and protected it, then that is true. So we have inspiration, which we'll talk about a little bit. Beyond that is something called canonization, and that is, how do you know that it's this book? not some other religious book. And how do you know it's these 66 books that we have in the Bible and not a dozen other books that claim to be books of the Bible? Canonization 
uh, hey, God has protected and preserved the words that he had inspired and the words that he wanted in his Bible. And then lastly, we have illumination. Uh, our last verse, verse 4, talks about this a little bit. You read it then. And as you read it, you're reading what God has to say. And the Holy Spirit then is working in your heart to illuminate these things so that you can understand and, and understand what uh, God has said to you. So I want you to look at these four things, and I have an outline for you that has a, a few thoughts with it. So uh, let's begin in verse 1 and look at these four thoughts. First of all, Luke has the facts, and he talks about the facts. For as much as many have taken in hand to set in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. Now, Luke was writing this book in the 60s A.D. You know the first century. Jesus died when? About 32, maybe 33 A.D. So 30 years later, Luke is writing his book. Well, Jesus had, in his lifetime, 12 apostles plus uh, uh, Paul and and others around him. And there were other people who followed with him and other people who saw what he did. And they experienced all that Jesus did. And Luke, 30 years later, knew these people. He knew the apostles and he knew other Christian people. And those people who, who were lived at the time of Jesus uh, had collected that information and was passing it on in many ways. Now notice uh, and, and by the way, some of them will be inspired, as you'll say. Not all of them were. A lot of good Christian people would tell Luke, hey, I was there when he multiplied the loaves. Let me tell you what happened, you know. But it wasn't Matthew or Mark or one of the Bible writers. Well, there are orderly facts. Notice many have, take, uh, have taken in hand to set forth in order this declaration uh, some would translate this a detailed narrative. Some have set forth with their hand to write out a detailed narrative of what happened. Uh, now, in hand there probably means that it was written down. Now, Matthew and Mark have already written their Gospels by the time Luke is writing his. And so of all the things that have been collected, there are two inspired documents. One is the Gospel of Matthew. The other is the Gospel of Mark. And Luke knows about them. He know, he's read them. He knows what they are, including others that were there who told him many things that happened. So the first thing we notice is that the Bible is a set of orderly facts. In other words, folks, it's, it's a chronology. It's a story. <laughs> We need to learn the chronology of the Bible. When you, when you think about it from creation all the way uh, to, to revelation, you have a history of the world. You have a chronology of everything that happens. Or when you read each little book, you have a story that goes in order. And when you put all of these things together, you have the order of this world, and in this case, the order of the life of Christ in detailed fashion, set down in hand. Now, there are believable facts, too, because he says those things which are most surely believed among us. I mean, we know these things are true. 
Uh, Acts chapter 1 calls them infallible proofs, many infallible proofs about the resurrection. 500 witnesses to the resurrection, Paul will later say. Infallible. We know that these are most surely believed among us. Now, folks, not all, the Bible doesn't include all the facts about a particular subject, but whatever the Bible does include is true fact. In other words, it may say something scientific. That doesn't mean that everything about science is in, uh, included in the Bible, but whatever the Bible says is true scientifically. And whatever it says about history is true historically and so forth. And so we have these believable, true facts. And, uh, and just think about it. All the way back to the first, to creation, we know how it happened. We know what happened on day one, on day two, on day three, in order. And then we have all the history of the world. Then we have the, the life of Christ given to us in four different books and all the way down to prophecy and what's going to happen yet in our future, even about heaven and hell. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. And Luke begins by saying, I know that now 30 years later, there are a lot of people who have seen this. There's a lot of people who have written down things that have happened. And I know Matthew and I know Mark. And I know that they've been inspired to write infallible records of these things. But secondly, he talks about these eyewitnesses and says, Even as they, the, the many from up above, delivered them unto us. Now, you notice a comma there, and I'm stopping reading the older version, of course. But these people who saw these things, and let me put the note in here, Luke didn't, did he? Luke wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Luke wasn't an early believer even in the time of Jesus, so he became a Christian later. And so those who were there, those who saw these things, delivered them unto us. Now he speaks about them, I think, when it says which from the beginning or who from the beginning. He's speaking about still those people. They were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So these early disciples delivered what they saw and knew to biblical writers. The, the, God, the doctrine of inspiration is a wonderful thing. There are certain times in inspiration where, like when Moses is writing what happened in the Garden of Eden, he wasn't there. <laughs> you know, God, God had to just dictate it to him, and he wrote it down because there's no way he experienced it. Or John, when he writes Revelation, he's not there, but he writes down what God has revealed. Other times, God uses other people to bring facts, but when the Bible writer writes them down, they are exactly the way God wants them written down. Any falsehoods are taken out. And so Luke was one who had to gather information from a lot of different sources because he wasn't there. But what he's going to say is, when I finally write, it was exactly what God wanted written down. That's the process of inspiration. Now, Here's an interesting word. You see the word eyewitnesses? It, you pronounce it in Greek, atoptai, atoptai. You know what English word we get from that? Autopsy. <laughs> he is saying here they were coroners. <laughs> they, they were autopsies. They were people who did an autopsy on the facts. Now, what does a coroner do with a body? I'm glad I'm not one. 
You know, I, I, I looked at, uh, you know, wounds and, and, and things like <laughs> this morning. Uh, and and, and uh, I say, well, I don't want to be a coroner. I don't want to take bodies apart. But those people look at all the details in there as much as they can look. And Luke is saying, and he's a doctor, they did an autopsy on the facts of the life of Christ. Pretty amazing when you think about it. They were very thorough witnesses. And first of all, of the very events themselves, they delivered them. What is the, the them? Those things up above that are surely believed. They delivered them to us. Here's an interesting thing. You know, in, in Acts chapter 1, Luke will write again in the book of Acts, his second book. And you remember when they were replacing Judas, and Judas is gone, and now they have to elect a, a, a successor to Judas. Acts 121 says, Wherefore of these men, and they had some nominees, Wherefore of these men, which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness of his resurrection. We need somebody who's done that autopsy. We need somebody who walked and saw it and heard it, and then that person can be uh, the 12th uh, apostle. And so here these people are who had, had done that kind of thing. They saw his miracles. Can you imagine walking around with Jesus? Even if you weren't one of the 12, you were in the crowd. You heard his teaching. You heard the controversy when he was explaining these things. I like the, the thought of what must have happened when he fed the 5,000. Uh, remember, with five, loaves, five small loaves of bread and two small fish. 5,000, probably more than that, with, plus the women and children. Imagine, if you will, that, that you are one of the 12 disciples, and, and you are, are watching Jesus take this bread and fish out of a basket and he keeps handing it out and handing it out and you want to look in there and say where did that come from how did you do that now matthew and john were there matthew's already written his gospel john will later and i i'm sure luke went to matthew and he said matthew what happened there tell me how that happened and matthew said it was unbelievable you should have seen it I looked at, I could, it, you know, just these, the little bit of food, it just kept coming and coming and coming. I don't know where it came from. It was a miracle. So he's looking at these details, and he's listening to these eyewitnesses, and he's hearing these kinds of things. Now, he says they were not only eyewitnesses, but ministers of this word. The word minister here, there's lots of words for minister. This one, huperetai, means the under rower. This is the slave in the bottom of the ship who's rowing the ship. He's the under, he's underneath the deck, he's the under rower. Just the poorest, simplest person who existed, and he's under there rowing the boat. And often our ministry, described in the New Testament, is one of just being an under rower. Nobody knows you, you're not visible to anybody else, but you're helping row the ship. And God will reward you for being faithful in your rowing. So there were under rowers. They were ministers. Let me go back to my illustration of the, of the feeding of the 5,000. See, Jesus 
was the one that works the miracle. He's the one that has the fish and the loaves in this basket, and uh, he's the one who reaches in, and the more he reaches in, the more it comes out. And the 12 apostles come up, and they have maybe a basket their own, and Jesus fills it, and they say, wow, and they go off and give it to people, and they come back, and he fills it again, and they go off, and 12 of them doing this, and it just keeps coming and coming. And so Jesus is working the miracle, the disciples are the under rowers, the ministers, and the people get to eat. <laughs> they get the food. They get the benefit of it. Well, the same thing happens in the giving of God's word. God gives inspiration to these writers, and you and I get to read what they wrote. You and I get to read and eat and feast on the bread of the word. Now, maybe somebody stood over Luke's shoulder, I'm sure not, while he was writing, but saying, Luke, what happened when you wrote this book? How did that happen? He said, you wouldn't, it was amazing. You know, I, I had all this information, I've written things before, but this God inspired me to write. I don't know how exactly it happened, but look, this is God's word. And they say, I know. And so they write, they are ministers, and you and I uh, get the benefit of it. But let me pass the responsibility on to us. You and I are ministers of the word. You and I have to give out the word. It wouldn't have done those people any good had the apostles left the food in the basket. People have to eat it. It wouldn't do any good if Luke's book had never been read, Matthew's book had never been read, but it has to be preached. And so you and I are ministers of the word because people have to eat and people have to hear it. And, and we, uh, have, we have received this from the very witnesses. We've received this from the very inspired writings. And it's written down, and you and I preach it and say, Thus saith the Lord, because <laughs> this is God's word. Okay, so there were these eyewitnesses. Thirdly, there are the writers themselves. And here's where Luke gets very technical about himself. It seemed good to me also. Having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write unto you in order most excellent theophilus so the bible writers had what he calls here perfect or infallible understanding because they are inspired now maybe one of the other people like maybe mary magdalene walked along with the disciples and saw a lot of things that Jesus did. Maybe she wrote some things down. Maybe she says, I'm going to write that down to remember it. It wasn't inspired. It was an eyewitness. But when Luke writes, he has perfect understanding. He knows what he's doing. And so he says, me also, <laughs> you know, uh, when, when that word perfect understanding, by the way, some translate thoroughly investigated. I mean, I had, I, I, I had my own autopsy of the fact. I had thoroughly investigated it and had perfect understanding. And here's a little interesting note I found. You see the word very first, the things from the very first. Another little detail. That word very first is the word anothen. And you've heard it before. And it comes from a very familiar passage of Scripture in John chapter 3. You must be born again 
But you've heard preachers tell you, and rightfully so, that the word to be born again means to be born from above. You are born from above. That word anothen is the same word that you have here. And very well could be the thought that I had perfect understanding of all things from above. God gave me this understanding. God gave me this, this inspired record that I have. I want to recount for you a few of, of the Bible writers and what they said. Let me go back, first of all, to Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 3. Ezekiel kind of stands back and he looks at himself while he's writing. He says, The word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest. Expressly, kind of the same idea. The son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon him. The word of the Lord came to him, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. This is Ezekiel describing himself, and he wrote the book of Ezekiel. You remember Ecclesiastes, Solomon, in uh, chapter 12, a uh, great chapter, uh, he talks about uh, how that, uh, you know, the, the old die and the dust goes back to the earth and the spirit goes unto God who gave it. And then he says, vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. But then he says, moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed, sought out and set in order many proverbs. Now listen, the preacher sought out acceptable words. And that which was written was upright, even words of truth. He was the preacher. He sought out acceptable words. And when he wrote them, they were upright, even words of truth. And he says, the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assembly. In other words, the word of God, first of all, is a goad. I have a long stick with a point on it. And once in a while, I reach down there and poke at you with it. The, words, the word of God is like a goad. You need goading sometimes. And nails fastened by the masters of assembly. Sometimes you just need something to hang your hat on. You need some place to hang your coat and your thoughts and your life on. But I like this statement. As nails fastened by the masters of assembly, which are given from one shepherd. It may be Solomon here, it may be Ezekiel there, it may be Luke over here, but it's all given by one shepherd. This is the word of God. Or Revelation 1.10, John on the Isle of Patmos, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voices of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book. And he wrote that, and it's called the book of Revelation. Send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and which shall be hereafter. And so this is what these writers are doing. Now look again here at verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having had this perfect understanding from all things, from the very first or from above, to write unto thee in order. The word writing is the word graphe. We get our word graft from it. You, when you make a graph, you write something with a pencil or a pen. It could be the word script. When we talk about inspiration, we say we believe in the plenary verbal inspiration. We, we, we use this word script. 
Well, you know a very familiar verse, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All graphe, all writing that God has inspired is God-breathed. The Holy Spirit breathed into this. And so here he's saying uh, in this verse, uh, God has enabled me with perfect understanding to give you scripture, to give you the script, to give you the writing. And he's done it in order, by the way. Or remember Peter's words when, when he said, we have a more sure word of prophecy, you know, a, a very sure word of prophecy. And then he says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God uh, spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, borne along by the wind. The Holy Spirit, the word spirit means breath or wind. And these Bible writers are borne along. You can see the ship in the sea with the big sails. And the ship would go nowhere if the wind didn't push the ship across the waters. And here are the writers, Peter is saying, and they go nowhere unless the Holy Spirit inspires, God breathes on them so that they produce Scripture. And that's what Luke is saying, too, that uh, he's known this from the very first to write and again in order. So it's an amazing thing, folks. Consider this. We have 66 books in this Bible, which means this process happened 66 times. 66 times God picked out men, Moses, Samuel, uh, Daniel, and, and all. And he said, I'm going to have you write this book. 66 times this miraculous process of inspiration happened. Not only that, by 40 or so, approximately 40 different writers over 1,500 years. This process of inspiration, that's an amazing thing. You would think, well, then they, they can't be on the same page. Surely there are contradictions. And yet when we look at it, no contradiction has been found. And everything blends together, uh, makes a complete story, goes from the beginning to the end. Every part fits with the other parts. There's no other book in the world like this. No other book has, has accomplished what the inspiration of Scripture accomplishes. No wonder he says it in these verses two times, in order. <laughs> We've done this in order. Now, lastly, the readers. He mentions most excellent Theophilus at the end of verse 3. And then he says that thou, you, Theophilus, might know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now, the Bible is written to be read. It's written for somebody like Theophilus, whose name, by the way, means uh, friend of God or even lover of God, Theos and uh, Philos. Maybe he was a friend of Luke's. Maybe he had been a student of Luke's. Maybe Luke had taught him already. Maybe he was a patient of Luke's as Luke is a doctor. But he had somehow come in contact with this man who, who's called most excellent, so he had some type of a, of a governmental position, and Luke knew him. And he says, you've been instructed in these things already. That word structured, uh, instructed is the word catechized. You've gone to catechism. 
and I've led you there, and you've been instructed in these things. Now, my simple point from verse 4 is just this. Luke's gospel would do no one any good if it hadn't been read by people like Theophilus and by you and me. We have to read this book. And when we read it, we become instructed. First of all, we have absolute truth. When he says the certainty of these things, it's a word that means not tripped up. <laughs> the word to trip up and then not tripped up. When you read the word of God, you're not being tricked. You're not being tripped up by the unbelief of your day and we have it and I read some of it to you it's abundant in our days when you read this it is written so that you won't be tripped up and our postmodern generation folks has a hard time with this they don't even believe that we can know truth or they believe that they themselves are the source of truth and whatever they speak is truth for them although what somebody else may speak is truth for somebody else we're being taught that in our universities today. So it's hard to say, I have certainty. I have absolute truth. But secondly, we're instructed in this truth, as I said already. And so the Bible has to be preached so that we can hear it. And we, and we have to learn it. We have to go through a catechism. That's why you're here this morning. That's why you were here last hour, so that you can be catechized, so you can learn these things. Just this week, Ann and I were traveling, and uh, we met some friends out in Colorado who now go to a, another church. They used to go to our church there, and um, and uh, they they had described the. I, I always hate to talk about other preachers. I love preachers, but their description was, "He's a good speaker," and then they said something like. Well, he doesn't explain the Bible very well, but he's such a good speaker. And I, I guess I know what the person meant. A good orator, flowery language, you know, easy to listen to. But I said to Ann in the car later, if a preacher can't explain the Bible, he's not a good speaker. I don't, you know, I don't know how uh, uh, it may be. If a, I would rather have a man, the most boring man to listen to in the world, who can explain this, than the most entertaining speaker who never gets around to it. After all, you're not here to hear me, folks. You're here to hear the word. You're here to let the truth of it energize your thinking. That is the only way to be a good speaker. Luke is saying, that's what, Theophilus, you heard, and that's why I've written it. And he will address him again in the book of Acts and say, you remember what I told you. Let's go to book two, <laughs> and he'll give him the second book also. So I'm saying here in Luke chapter 1, uh, it, it's a unique thing that God did. Jude said it's once for all delivered unto the saints. So, so in a world of deceit and sin and error, God has one infallible, unfailing source of truth for you. Something you can always go to and say, this is right. And if what I hear contradicts this, I will take this every time. This was inspired by the God who created everything. And so it tells us about ourselves. 
that we are sinners and we are people in need. It tells us the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and how to have eternal life. It guides us through our lives. It gives us unshakable confidence at the time of our death, which we see in those around us who go on to meet the Lord. And it promises us a heaven where we will live forever. Unshakable truth. That's why we're here. That's why we believe these things. Let's always do it and be faithful witnesses of the word. Stand now with me, if you will, as we stand and we'll sing a song together and think about these things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for what we have in our hands. Thank you for Luke's words here, as interesting as they are, and no doubt deep beyond our understanding. Thank you that we can understand a few things from it and apply them to our lives and have confidence in what we have in our hands. So bless, Father, in these words. Bless us in our generation that we might be faithful to the truth because this world needs it so much. So now, Father, speak to our hearts in every way that we need and correct us and draw us uh, to you and to your perspective that we may be walking with you in the way that we should. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.